As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the game podcast from the Times. Today, why isn't Daniel Levy answering his phone? Could Robert Lewandowski be coming to the Premier League? And what impact will Romelu Lukaku have at Chelsea? We'll also tell you why some clubs are stuck with their fringe players and we'll talk awful kits. This is the game. To help me through it all, once again, Gregor Robertson, Jonathan Northcroft and Tom Clark. How are you, gentlemen? Very, very well used. Thank you much. Now, where should we begin today? It seems obligatory, doesn't it, that we should start with Harry Kane's Spurs saga and his future, of course. His teammates have travelled out to Portugal for the Europa Conference League qualifier. Uh, Kane did manage to tweet a picture yesterday of himself at Spurs Lodge, their training ground, with the caption, another session in the bank. His manager, Nuno Espirito Santo, isn't sure if he'll play against Wolves in the Premier League this weekend, though. I loved the caption, another session in the bank, Tom, but I did think it may have been a veiled insult at Daniel Levy. Why Why use the term in the bank? I think you're being very generous to Harry Kane and his team there, Hugh. With any, any suggestions that there is any subtle... Uh, implications behind that. I think it's Kane and his team desperately trying to pull back any semblance of a good PR uh, position in this whole saga. They've managed it abysmally uh, in that sense. How you could be, you know, compare as Henry was doing on Monday show with Jack Grealish, to be a legend of Kane's stature at that club uh, and now be in the position he's in. I think it's also quite telling as well that during the Euros, Tottenham and their social media accounts were proudly tweeting at any op- any opportunity about Kane and his performances for England. And normally when you have a player training and it's a kind of return return to the training ground, we'd normally see that on the club official account as well. And there was nothing to, nothing to be seen. So I'd say this is, I, th- I think you're giving them a lot of credit for suggesting there's a, any kind of subtle um, implications behind Behind that tweet, it's just Kane desperately trying to regain a bit of um, a bit of uh, a bit of good PR. I think in in this in this whole situation. On a side note, Tom, they do seem Kane's team to be briefing any journalist that, that drops them a, a WhatsApp at this point in time. I mean, every paper in the country's got the inside scoop. It seems. Yeah, they tried to come on this podcast, but we had to turn them down. That's an idea. We should ask. They were too keen. Yeah, they're, they're, they're putting a lot of information out there, certainly this summer. But as we're going to discuss, it seems like they've been doing a lot of talking with journalists and not enough talking with the main man who they need to do the talking with, Daniel Levy, uh, which, as we all know, any football fan knows, if you're going to get a transfer away from Tottenham, there's only one man that really matters. Um, so it's great as journalists and as editors to be 
well-informed from one camp when it comes to a transfer story, but you need to make sure you've got the chief exec and the chairman on side first. I'm going to come to Daniel Levy in a second, but firstly, in the Times, Gregor, Paul Ballas, Gary Jacob, Paul Hurst, they've all written today that Manchester City must sell before they're able to purchase Harry Kane. They say the likes of Bernardo Silva and Eimerick Laporte are sort of players that want to leave the club who they could bring in a fee for. Not really the case at the moment, anyone bidding for them, though. Um, Do do you think this is going to happen, this deal, if it relies on those players being sold? I think that would be shaky ground because, you know, these are are stellar players, but they are going to cost a lot of money and the market is is in experience a lot of pain just now. One report said that Laporte's on 160,000 a week. There are not many clubs in European football who can pay that on top of a hefty transfer fee. I think, you know, probably 50 odd million for him as well. Yeah, it's it's, it's very interesting the kind of economic climate at the moment. I, I'm not sure I, I buy that, to be brutally honest, that they need to sell to, to uh, you know, there's, there's lots of kind of politics here. There's, that might be a way of them thinking they can keep the price down. Um, I don't think they pro- they really do need to sell them. I think there's a wider kind of conversation about uh, the state of the market, but um, Manchester City aren't the only aren't the only club who are finding it difficult to shift players. Daniel Levy, talk to us about him, Johnny. Um, he reportedly refuses to talk despite a hundred twenty five million pound bid from Manchester City. Don't know what the truth is in that. I'm just reading one of the many uh, briefings to the papers across the nation. Where do you sit on Daniel Levy's position in all of this? I know you've written about it in the Sunday Times. Yeah, I mean, I, I did do a big piece at the weekend and, and, you know, I was trying to get to the bottom of who Daniel Levy is because it seems to me he's one of the, the main actors in, in English football and somebody that's been a main actor for 20 years and, and yet we still don't know too much about who he is and, and what he thinks. And, and I think the fact that he is inscrutable and speaks through the deals he does and and, and through actions rather than um, giving interviews or whatever is, is probably part of his his effectiveness. I, I I from from the research I did and, and looking at the scenario, I think if Daniel Levy was sitting here now, he would answer you by saying, "What is there to talk about? Why should I talk to Manchester City? Manchester City bid hundred million pounds back at, in June two months ago, which was rebuffed." Um, which is well short of, of of Spurs' valuation, and since then, City have, have have done nothing. Nothing's really sort of changed in the situation. So, the idea that he is sort of blanking them and needs to come to the table, I, I think he would he would laugh at. And, and I think he, you know, in any negotiation, the minute you start to come to the table, is the minute you get involved in a haggle. And as far as Levy is concerned, Harry Kane has a price, has a value. And this is how he operates. You know, this is, I, I, I spoke to agents and, and managers and players about, you know, how does this guy do his deals? And, and in some ways, there's no great secret. You know, that what, what came back was he, he, he identifies a valuation and better than anyone else or more stubbornly than anyone else. He sticks to that valuation. He doesn't get embroiled in any, any sort of, uh, deviating arguments he just sticks to it stubbornly continues to come out with the logic behind that evaluation and either gets it or, or walks away and I think in this case he had a valuation early in the in, in the summer Manchester City we didn't come anywhere near it even if they met it now I have big doubts as to whether it would do anything because what I was hearing um, 
was that it's just too late now. Because Harry Kane is almost priceless to Tottenham Hotspur. That's that's the thing. Even if even if City were to pay the 160 million, how could they replace him now? If they paid 160 million at the start of the summer, there might have been half a chance. Um, I've you know been doing this long enough to know that anything can can happen, and City maybe could come out with that that incredible bid that that changes everything. But I don't see it. I, I think it's too late. I think what we're talking about, the, the, the fascinating story about City having to sell, Kane's tweet, it's just noise. There's a lot of noise around this coming from the, the parties who want the deal to happen. And the party that doesn't, who holds the cards, is silent, saying nothing. And I think that noise from the other side is, 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 is a desperate attempt to try and shift the position that isn't working. I don't mean to be disrespectful to Spurs, but I'd be devastated if I was Harry Kane and I didn't move this summer. I mean, why? Why? All the upheaval, all the arguments, all the front page and back pages. I mean, if you're not going to get out the door somewhere, then then was it really worth it? I think it'd be devastated. I think he, I mean, he might end up with the worst of both worlds because he might end up staying but having tarnished his, his position. The, the, the reason for staying is the old Steven Gerrard reason that, okay, you might not win as much, but you can be a legend and you can do something that will be remembered for you, get your statue. It might be that after this, what he's done this summer, he doesn't get his statue, he's lost the love and, and, and he has to stay because he's his side have played it very badly. I would say, it's, you know, it might not be a win-win for Levy either and Spurs. If he doesn't maybe have quite the same season, I'm sure Harry Kane will still get 20 goals. But if he's maybe not firing on, on all cylinders, you know, as I say, an unhappy player, your biggest player. And then next year, his value drops by a significant chunk of money and he still wants to leave. Uh, has that been a good a good, good move for Spurs as well? I don't know if there's a winner out of any, you know, there's really a winner from this, to be honest. Yeah, I see that, Greg. I mean, I, I, I guess when you look at Levy, you've got to think of someone who plays a very long game and has been there for 20 years and, and perhaps, uh, and it's built, like, you know, when you look, he bought Spurs for 20, £22 million pounds and it's now worth £2 billion and he hasn't spent a penny. You know, every, 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 they're unique among top clubs in that they've raised every, every penny that they've spent. So, you know, he spent two decades increasing the value of this club by the power of 100 and any stance he takes on Harry Kane, I think, has to be seen within that. Um, because if he crumbles on Harry Kane, then he loses that Daniel Levy factor when he comes to do the next deal. And he might get some money in, in the short term, but he can't spend it because the window's nearly shut. Um, we then go in the next window with everybody knowing Spurs had a lot of money to spend. The prices would, would go up. Um, and he might figure that you know, if, if Harry Kane's valuation drops by 80 million over the summer, over the season, he's effectively spending 80 million to, to, to keep Kane. But that might be the difference between getting them into the Champions League or not. And they've got a new manager who's trying to start, a new sporting director who's trying to start a new era. You're equipping him with the best possible hand. They've also got fans back at that stadium and, and filling that stadium and... and, and and, and monetizing, you know, that stadium through happy fans is essential to the Spurs business model. That's why they've spent 1.2 billion on it. He's priceless. It's like Zaha and Crystal Palace. How, how do you how do you replace him? How do you actually value him if you're the, if you're the club because of his importance to to to, to the team? 
I'd also say quickly say that if you're a Tottenham fan and you you kind of fall fallen out of Harry Kane, fall, fallen out of love with Harry Kane because of this, then you you're a fool. It's completely entirely understandable, and I think there's a large section of Spurs fans who would agree with that. They maybe don't like the fact that you know that Golden Balls is kind of shown a glimmer of of a dark side, <laughs> and that he's you know he kind of not turn up for training and then, then rowing back on it quickly. It's like, oh, no, I'm not sure I can do this. But really, I also think if Harry Kane stays and he's he scored five goals in the first month of the season, pretty quickly be forgotten about. Yeah. If he scores and, and show, you know, fans, fans only think of the last game, shows a commitment, kisses a badge, of course, people will <laughs> fall for it. And actually, actually the, the sort of the hard edge that he's shown, it entirely fits with the player that we see on the pitch. He's a very single-minded footballer. Who's dragged himself up from, you know, moderate talent to being one of the best strikers England have ever had through being single-minded and focused and hard-edged and probably a bit ruthless, probably a bit ruthless on the on the pitch, um, and having an ego about him, and that's that, that's that's what we're that's what we're seeing now. I kind of kind of don't blame him for that, but it, I just think this <laughs> the whole saga has been played spectacularly badly. And you, you you do contrast it with Jack Grealish. The big the biggest difference is that Grealish had a get out clause, and everybody knew the situation, and there was time to prepare for it. What we might see, I think, with Kane is is an exit next summer that's a little bit better managed, but it probably won't be to Manchester City. Well, another big name, a big striker in world football who might might be leaving his club this summer or next is Robert Lewandowski. I just wanted to bring this up quickly. It's in the news this morning that the Bayern Munich striker. Apparently wants a new challenge. He's 33 years old. I just wondered whether anyone thought he might end up in, in the Premier League anytime soon. Tom, what do you think? Reported 110 million euros is what Bayern want. Is that going to happen? I don't think so. It'd be lovely to see him in the Premier League because what a phenomenal player he is. And I think still incredibly underrated, actually, in the wider football society. I don't think people fully appreciate his talents, partly because sometimes when we see him on the biggest stage, uh, international tournaments he's injured as he was in the summer or kind of leading a average Poland team but no I can't see it um, we've talked before about how nice it would be if everyone just did a big big swap deal big round big round robin transfer everyone swaps swap strikers for a, for a few seasons it'd be nice to see wouldn't it Haaland goes one way Lewandowski goes to another team Kane goes another way and everyone has a good laugh about it but no, I can't, I can't see it. It always it fascinates me. The new challenge. What is a new challenge? He can come to Lincoln if he wants. That'd be a challenge. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we could do with a striker. That's a challenge. If he wants to come and play, play, play in League One for a season um, and get, get kicked about, that'd be a good laugh. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure the challenge that he's got in mind, Juventus, Manchester City or anything like that, uh, is particularly qualifies as a challenge. But no, I can't, I can't see it, particularly with... Kane is a good example. You know, the teams just don't have the money for him. It just seems like a mad statement. Like, as you say, he's going to be 30, he's just about 33, knowing how much it's going to cost. Who who, who does he envisage? Does he, he, he must know, know a club that is willing to, to pay money for him. Um, maybe not 100 million, but, you know, he must, there must be something in the background. Otherwise, coming out, coming out with a statement is madness. That's what I think. Yeah, I, I think somebody's, called him or his agent and, and and said, do you fancy it? Might be a club, who knows, that we're looking at Harry Kane and can't afford him now. I don't know. Because, um, <laughs> you know, you, we are talking about, as Tom said, one of the 
one of the greats really of, of our era and and you know there's there's probably four great number nines at the moment one of them being Haaland who's still on the way up so in terms of bankable experienced ones it's probably Kane Lewandowski Lukaku and they're in that that that's why they're valuable but I do I, what his situation makes me think of the Kane situation and I think we, we're all assuming that that next summer at 29 it's going to be too late for Harry Kane and I'm not sure about that it might be too late for Manchester City and Harry Kane but you know, if you look at what Lewandowski has done in his career after the age of 28, 29, and you look at the longevity of Ronaldo, and you look at Edinson Cavani moving to United at 33, after not played for four or five months and actually having a pretty impressive impact, players are going for longer. And I think Kane will still be, still be valuable next summer and would still have options and still be scoring goals. And he models himself in Lewandowski. Lewandowski scored about 250 club goals post the age of 29. So, you know, and, and, if, and he's still valuable, valued at £100 million by Bayern Munich at the age of 33, getting on for 34. So it, it, I, think, I, think he, I think he shows Kane that, you know, it, it's possible. And it fascinates me how, how, you know, these guys are pushing the boundaries. And how, how how much I mean Lewandowski might end up just getting a new contract at Bayern Munich and continuing scoring until he's thirty eight. Even if you look at Jamie Vardy, I think he went second on the all time list of goals post the age of, of thirty in the Premier League as well. Only Ian Wright's in front of him. He's gone past Alan Shearer. So plenty more left in the tank for a lot of these players. But I think Robert Lewandowski would be a great addition. I just wonder, we all know Manchester United like a final day signing whether they will come back at some point. We'll be talking in the, in the coming weeks, maybe, about a new number nine at Old Trafford. Who knows? I'm just saying, you know, uh, maybe it's me deep inside just wanting them to sign a new striker. We will it's see. It's nice to see you so optimistic, Hugh. I love it. It, it won't last. <laughs> I love it. I love to see it. The club always spends money. You can't complain if you're a Man United fan, even though some of it does go out of the club as well, maybe too much. But anyway, that's another story. We'll come to a little bit uh, later on. Uh, in terms of transfers later on, that is... Players who just can't get sold. It's an interesting topic. Up next, though, we'll look ahead to Romelu Lukaku's second Chelsea debut. And can Everton bring a surprise at Ellen Road? But remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from. And make sure you read Henry Winter in the Times at the moment on Harry Kane's tawdry behaviour. He says it doesn't befit an England captain. Well, after his £97.5 million move to Chelsea, Romelu Lukaku will make his second debut for the club this weekend in a London derby, no less, against Arsenal at the Emirates, the European champions. Um, I think we'll be putting fear into the Gunners fans already ahead of this one after their opening weekend defeat, of course against Brentford. But on Lukaku, he says he's more mature following his two seasons in Italy with Inter Milan and that he's setting higher standards by his own admission. Are we expecting greatness from Lukaku this time in the Premier League? Yeah, I mean, for, just following on from what Johnny just said, I think that he's right. I think there's four number, four truly great number nine just now. And I think really, actually, it's three, and Haaland is going to be. He's, it's so clear he's going to be. I just, looked, I just looked at his goals. He's basically scored a goal every two games for Anderlecht, West Brom, Everton and Man United. For Inter, it was more like two goals every three games. So I think it was 64 and 95 games and that's 64 and 98 caps for Belgium as well. It's like, they're very, 
very few strikers who are a guarantee, but he is a guarantee. So I think we will we will see greatness, and he comes. He does come back, as he said, more mature, more experienced, and he's that player of stature now. You know, when he was at Chelsea before, he was the guy coming through. Then he kind of went out and proved proved his worth. Uh, Manchester United, there was always, you know, although his his goal record was brilliant, there was always kind of sniping. He was the, the, the difficult period for the for the club. You know, that post Ferguson era and under under Mourinho as well. But now he's joining a club that is European champions, who are really going to be challengers for the Premier League, and he is their number nine. So yeah, absolutely, we're going to see we're going to see lots of goals from from Lukaku this season. Tom, minimum for Chelsea then this year with Lukaku in the club has to be a top two finish, surely. Quadruple, win the lot, absolutely. <laughs> that's what they've got to say. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Tuchel set his standards very, very high in a short space of time. So Chelsea fans' expectations will be unsurprisingly through the roof. Just very briefly on Lukaku, I think it's interesting comparing him to those other number nines. And he obviously is is and has a phenomenal goal-scoring record. But one of the things that have interested me when I've watched him, particularly for Belgium, is sometimes he makes runs out wide and becomes quite a clever creative force. And when I was looking at his stats last season in Serie A, not only did he score 24 goals, which was the second highest, but he also had 11 assists which was the second highest in Serie A as well. So I'd be, I'm going to be really interested to see whether Tuchel plays him as that conventional, traditional number nine, the spearhead at the top of the attack, or whether he allows him to drift into channels because he's got incredible pace as well. I think of those players that we're talking about, the Canes, the Lewandowskis, Lukaku is absolutely rapid when he gets going. If he knocks the ball around you, he's gone. So in those wider areas, potentially with the likes of Havertz and people running into the space in a central area, that could be a deadly kind of rotating front three if Tuchel wants it to be. Who knows? We know he's very tactically adept, so maybe we see two or three different versions of Romelu Lukaku. But that's what I, I'm quite excited to see. And he's talked, I was speaking to Tom Roddy before coming on the podcast, and he was in the press conference with Lukaku yesterday saying how Lukaku had talked about, I needed to leave England to develop my game and saying what a big role Antonio Conte had played in that development and how he comes back to England a, a more complete player. And so I just think with with those kind of hints and maybe those assists, we're going to see more, more than a number nine, more than a number nine who scores goals between the posts. We'll see a guy who drifts wide, links the play, maybe gets quite a few assists. Who knows? But I think the fact that he has that about his game now makes him even more of a thrilling prospect for Chelsea fans. I, th- I think that's right, and uh, you, you can picture Havertz arriving into the box, or you can picture Ziyech when he plays at that number ten, or Pulisic arriving for for Lukaku. You also think of the number of chances that you know that, that Chelsea have fashioned that Timo Werner's botched, and and think about Lukaku's conversion rate. <clears throat> Excuse me, but and another thing that I think of is Tuchel is a is a fascinating blend of. A great tactical thinker, but also somebody I think who thinks carefully about the chemistry of his team and about the sort of psychology of management. And when you when you look at the spine he's now putting in place at Chelsea, you know, which would go from a Thiago Silva and Rudiger, Kante and Jorginho in the middle, and now Lukaku. I mean, that's that's kind of almost unmatched in terms of a, a group of kind of winners, uh, top players, guys with real um, ability to sort of drag you through difficult situations, and then he's got the young players around that. I, I think it's a it's a great signing, not just for the the tactical and and, and the on field um, 
sort of chemistry, but the off-field chemistry and 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 the um, just the, 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 the what it gives Chelsea in terms of durability across a tough Premier League season, and 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 you know they're, they're, it, it elevates them even further in terms of the title challenge. Gregor, top two. Absolutely, I asked. Yeah, I said they are challenging. They're, I think they'll go toe to toe with the City this season. And in fact, you know, if City don't get a, a number nine, I might even now put them as slight favourites. I think Lukaku, Lukaku will score twenty five goals. You know, we saw City do something pretty remarkable last season without a, a kind of uh, an out and out number nine. I don't know if they can repeat that. And I think. That's you know a lot changed in the second half of the season since Tuchel came in. He beat them three times, I think, was it? So absolutely, I think Lukaku is the is the final piece of the puzzle for Chelsea. Never mind the pressure of Chelsea fans. Gregor, I hate predictions. Robertson's gone right in. <laughs> <laughs> that is huge, huge pressure on Romelu Lukaku now. Gregor, Gregor Robertson's gone gone back to you, back to you to the hilt. That's it. Yeah, that's his pressure right there. <laughs> don't know if, if Lukaku is the final piece of the puzzle I think they need a centre-back and we'll explain why that might be hard to get over the line a little bit later on especially when it comes to Chelsea squad but on the game at the weekend at the Emirates Arsenal um, before we get to how they've played they have signed Martin Erdegaard from Real Madrid that's around £30 million Aaron Ramsdale from Sheffield United should be coming in for at least 24 25 million plus add-ons um, add that to Ben White, Albert Lokonga, Nuno Tavares as well, Tavares as well. £135 million this summer. £220 million in the past few windows, three windows to be exact, I think. How much pressure should be on Mikel Arteta from the spending perspective now? Um, you know, the football's one thing, but he has brought players into the club. You, you, I don't know, Gregor, do you think he's been backed? I think that's the question. Do you actually think he's been backed? Yeah, I would say he has. I think he's been backed. But as I said last week, I think there's still question marks about Arsenal's efficiency in the transfer market and Edu's role as technical director. And, you know, personally, I would have some question marks about Ramsdale, who's had back-to-back relegations in the Premier League. He doesn't look to me... He's clearly a very talented goalkeeper. And he towards the end of the season, when the pressure was off, he actually improved greatly for Sheffield United. But he doesn't look to me like a pillar of calm consistency. And I think that Arsenal could do with that. With Arsenal's back line, um, the whole atmosphere around the club. If you're spending that kind of money on a goalkeeper, I think you want someone who's who's a stand-up guy. And I, I don't really see that there in Ramsdale. So I said White, I think, is a good signing. So yeah, he's been backed and undoubtedly he's under pressure. Um, but as we said and we touched on last week, there's you know a a bigger picture. It's not Arteta who's who's choosing all these players. He surely has got input, but Arsenal are still a pretty dysfunctional looking club to me. I would say on the transfers though, it does look like that they have a new approach. I mean, some players have come out of the academy, some players they're bringing into the club, but Saka's 19, Martinelli's 20, Smith-Rowe's 21, Tavares is 21, Lokonga's 21, Gabriel's 23, Ben White's 23, Tierney's 24. They could be taking the long-term approach, looking what looking at what Liverpool did a few years back and saying, if we try and populate the club with a lot of good young players, the five-year plan might be there instead of the two-year plan. I'm right behind that. But in the meantime, Arteta needs to win some games. So if he's looking at keeping his job, uh, then you know it's all good having this broader vision and, and mm. signing young players with you know 
room for development and who can increase in value. And Arsenal needed some a kind of a bit of a a new blueprint like that. But in the meantime, they need to win games. And I don't see, as I said said last week, if they're giving Jack a new contract to to be the captain and leader in the team, they've still got the same old problems there. I agree that there's a new plan going on at Arsenal. It's a it's a it's a it's a logical one. You know, you can't if going away from the David Luiz style signings and the Obama Yangs and and the kind of glamour Nicholas Pepe ones and trying to make sort of sensible signings like Liverpool did to get to the top four before they then do a title challenge. And then you look at Granite Xhaka re-signing and it kind of blows all that logic away. So I think they've I think they've got the beginnings of a plan, but they actually need to see it through properly and they need to think hard about Arteta. Mm, yeah, add Ramsdale and, and Odegaard with their young ages to that. And you never know. Um, we'll see if they come good. What do you expect from Arsenal at the weekend, though? Hosting Chelsea, Tom. It's going to be a difficult game, isn't it? A very difficult game. So difficult that maybe it'll help them because no one's expecting them to do anything against this Chelsea side, are they? Hopefully. And I mean, Gregor talks about pressure and Ramsdale that seems to me when Arsenal struggle the most, when there's any kind of pressure on. Um, and Arteta maybe can come up with some kind of tactical plan to to combat Chelsea. I, yeah, who who knows? I, I don't see it personally. I don't see it. Mm. They usually have a good game against Chelsea, but I wonder what the atmosphere will be like. It's been a long time since those fans were in the Emirates Stadium. They've voiced their concerns before they've ended up protesting outside the stadium about the European Super League. That was when, of course, there were no fans going to games. Um, I know that is, has been put to, to one side for now, but I do think just looking at the ticket prices, some of the comments from my Arsenal mates after that defeat against Brentford, you know, I think they're the club that's almost like the most unhappy camp after one game I think I've ever seen. Johnny, do you think we'll be able to tell that in the Emirates on Sunday? Yeah, I think it's. I think they are the most unhappy camp in, in, at the moment. You know, even Everton fans sort of were smiling again after after winning at the weekend, and it's been miserable for Arsenal. They haven't even had the glee of of seeing Harry Kane go from Spurs, which they thought they might get, and they will show it. The Emirates is always toxic, is maybe too strong a word, but it's a febrile place when Arsenal aren't doing well, which which you know has been most of the last five, six, seven years. They certainly, the guys around the press box always let you know what you should be putting in your paper. Um, and uh, they will be quite un, unforgiving, I think, of, of a bad performance. Um, I think it's, it's, it's truth time for Mikel Arteta because he will draw, he will draw a, a, a significant amount of the flack. Of course, there'll be many that focus on on the Cronkies, but I actually, I do think Arsenal have spent, you know, you think about Thomas Partey last summer, that was a big commitment for them. I do think they, I do, I do think they've spent and they're trying to sort it out. So the focus all will be Arteta's and it could be uncomfortable for him on Sunday. I put Lukaku straight into my fantasy team. Don't worry about that. Jamie Vardy, apologies. But I think it's going to be a massacre. Who knows though? You know, Arsenal sometimes do, uh, like I say, get the result against Chelsea. They've got a big game coming up against Manchester City after that as well. So a very important two games for Mikel Arteta. At three o'clock on Saturday afternoon, the way it should be done, Ellen Road will be full of fans as well for Leeds United against Everton. Traditional fixture as well. I wanted to talk about Rafa Benitez's Everton because they beat Southampton in their opening match. Their next five games are Leeds, Brighton, Burnley, Aston Villa and Norwich. And I thought it was plausible looking at that, that Everton in the early part of this season could once again be one of the surprise packages. And I enjoyed, I say enjoyed, 
I was proved right by Rafa Benitez's approach in that opening game. I thought he would strip back the squad, strip back a style of football and play to their strengths. That's exactly what they did. And I expect to see more of it. But it might be a contrast in styles between him and Marcelo Bielsa. So I'm expecting a good game at Ellen Road. Tom, how do you think it will go? I think you're right. I think it'd be really interesting. And we discussed it briefly uh, on Monday's pod, didn't we? How, well, I certainly think that Everton now makes sense for the first time in a long time with Rafa Benitez and Dominic Calvert-Lewin leading the line and then putting crosses into the box for him. It's it's like, yeah, finally, this this makes a bit of sense, which is interesting coming off the back of a conversation about Arsenal, who still don't make any sense in lots of ways. And I think back to the game at Ellen Road last season against Burnley, where Bielsa came up with quite a clever plan to combat the kind of balls into the box to the high balls forward to Burnley strikers, where I think it was Calvin Phillips who was kind of dropping into a defensive role, almost like a sweeper, and letting his centre-back teammates compete for the ball, and he was pinching it off them. So whether he'll be back for Leeds could be a big factor in that in that battle um, in those central areas. But I think th- this is this is where we like to see Bielsa and see what he comes up with. Because I think it, too often people say, oh, he just has this mad kamikaze way of playing. But that's actually quite reductive in terms of how Bielsa and Leeds set up. They do often switch it and change and tweak things slightly. Yes, they are still all action, but there are tweaks to that. And I think he will have to against Benitez, who's a very smart manager in these situations. So it'd be it'd be really interesting. I'm going. I, Greg is the one who's taking all the predictions on this podcast. I'm taking his role of sitting, <laughs> of, sitting of sitting completely on the fence and saying I've absolutely no idea how this game's going to pan out. But I'm really interested to see the tactical battle. Greg, how do you think it'll go? It depends. Well, Leeds turn up. You know, <laughs> Leeds could steamroll them if they're if they're you know if they bring their A game. But yeah, I, I agree. I think they, there's a there's just a little bit of a weakness early in central defence for Leeds, actually, which doesn't bode particularly well. I think Liam Cooper is often kind of beaten in the air set pieces last season. I think that is a weakness. So, that you know, that is obviously, that is clearly Everton's kind of strategy this season. Um, and it'd be interesting, you know, if don't, if don't if the, main, the main tweak that Leeds always look for is if, if there's one up front, they have two, two central defenders. If they go two up front, then they switch their back three to try and cope with it. And either way, I think, Leads that is their that is their biggest weakness central defence. So Dominic Calvert Lewin f- uh, firing, I think uh, could be a could be a big threat for them. You going for an Everton win, little Leeds at home. Calvin Phillips's return is is the sort of key factor for Leeds. I saw them on um, I saw them at Old Trafford. And they weren't as bad as a five one, but they they were soft in midfield. And Rodrigo didn't work there, so it'll be interesting to see how much he lifts them. I like also I think Richarlison and Rafinha are two of the you know the best talents and maybe most underrated players outside the the, the quote unquote big clubs in in the league. And and I think they will both get a lot of space to to run into. Um, in, the, in this game so um, that's going to be interesting but it's, it's hard it's just hard to know um, you know Everton are in formation at the moment you know it's, it's, it's hard to know how, if they'll maintain that if, if they play like they did in the second half last week I think they will win that game but I, I think there might be a few bumps in the road getting there um, so that's a kind of very waffly way of sitting on the fence, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> We're undecided on Everton, but I still think, mark my words, in a few weeks' time, we'll be talking about them being right up there. I, I believe in Rafa, as you all know, I'm sure. Um, up next, why can't clubs shift their fringe players? And what's happened 
to football shirts. Unbelievable. Um, but remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, leave us a five-star review and make sure you're subscribed to The Times and The Sunday Times at thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So, in the Times, Gary Jacob and Paul Hurst have explored the issue of selling fringe players in the Premier League. It's an interesting read. Chelsea seem to be experts at it. Um... Tamui Bakayoko, Danny Drinkwater, Ross Barkley, though, um, at the point, don't even have a squad number right now. Phil Jones at Man United, Sad Kalasinac at Arsenal, both on around £100,000 per week. They're not going to play and they can't be sold by the sound of it, given their massive salaries. I think this is a this is a big issue for football, I think, generally speaking, because I always thought you could give these players away, basically. You know, why charge, you know, sell him for a million quid. But the contracts basically state that, of course, if you're going to sell a player, you need to pay off their contract. And the, the amount left on these contracts means that they can't be given away, these players, to be perfectly frank. Someone's got to pay them off. And it's a big, big whack, at least five million quid for some of these guys. And no one wants to pay it. No one wants to take on their salaries on loan either. They're stuck. Um, Gregor Robertson, where were you stuck? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we've not got long enough to go through that list. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a real issue though because firstly there are good players who are not going to see on a football pitch and I don't think sport should be like that generally speaking I know there's always going to be good players on the bench at big clubs but the idea that good players who could be playing each and every week in a league aren't even in a squad at any club but they're getting a huge salary is bad for the game and I think that that thing that's been spoken about from owners and chairman over the years of trying to keep up, we need to give out big salaries and pay big fees to try and keep up might be coming home to roost. What do you think, Gregor? You've been in the game. James Gibran wrote an interesting column at the weekend sort of suggesting that, uh, you know, a cap in squads was the answer to this because there's several kind of issues at play here. One is the kind of how polarised football has become between the extreme rich and the rest. And that is why they can pay such extortionate wages, big transfer fees, whore players, and then when there's a bit of a economic uh, fright, they're now stuck with, I think Chelsea returned to pre-season with 42 players. 
Uh, and most of the players that you're talking about them selling are actually academy graduates. So they're they're fueling the the transfer spend by selling most of their players that they've nurtured through the academy and sent out on loans, huge huge loan farm. That's another issue about the number of players that that, that clubs are allowed to loan. So I think there's you know you, you've mentioned players like Drinkwater and Baki, um, Bakayoko and Barkley. You know they're players that that's not that uncommon. Although they are very good players, as you say, we'd like to see them play, and they could play for perhaps not um, Drinkwater now, but you, they, they could play for other Premier League clubs. That's because they're in such huge wages. But there's also players like Bernardo Silva, who we, we were speaking about earlier, who's 27. He's won three Premier League titles. He's won league on with Monaco. He's won the Portuguese league with with Benfica. He is an elite level footballer. There's no, there's no kind of question about that, and no one can afford to buy him because of <laughs> because of what Manchester City value him at and the amount of money he's earning every week, and also just because they are willing and able to hoard so many players. They've got look how many attackers they've got: Jesus, Mares, Ferran Torres, Jack Grealish, Phil Foden, Raheem Sterling. That's before you talk about, you know, De Bruyne, who could play in, in a more advanced role. It's ridiculous. Like, it's, this has not really been seen before. So I think it's not just a Premier League issue because you look at PSG, who have got 10 players, I think, now they've said they're willing to to move on if anyone, if there's any takers now that they're saying Messi. But it is an issue that's more concentrated in the Premier League because there's more money in the Premier League than anywhere else. And I think it's just kind of come to the fore this summer where, as you say, normally those players would move on to somewhere else, but the the gulf between the, the extreme rich and the rest has now become a chasm. But there's also a point, isn't there, about the mid-table Premier League clubs becoming a bit smarter and a bit wiser to the big six trying to farm out their, their players. I mean, there was that period where we were all praising Liverpool's sporting directors for their ability to sell on Jordan Ibe, Benteke, Sacco, you know, it felt like Crystal Palace and Bournemouth were just willingly lapping up these players and they didn't prove to be that sensible acquisitions. Uh, Everton were another team. West Ham, it felt like there was a period where West Ham, it was like, if there's a player from the big six who's not quite at it, oh yeah, we'll, we'll pay, pay 30 million for them and pay their wages and actually it won't be very good for our club. You know, Everton now are signing Andros Townsend and Damari Gray because Rafa Benitez goes, that's what we want and they're much cheaper Clubs like Crystal Palace are looking to the championship and signing Eberichi Eze, Elise from Reading they signed this summer. They're players that are much smarter moves for them because they can, yeah, they find they still cost 20 million maybe, but the wages are much lower. And there's the potential that if, obviously Eze, we hope he comes back from injury, but if he then becomes the player that a lot of people think he will, he'll then be the next Jack Grealish or whatever. You know, I'm using that very flippantly, but he'll then be the next £60 million player that they sell on rather than them taking on a player from Manchester United or Manchester City who is only going to depreciate in value and potential. He might be a club legend for two years at best, but you've got no further sell-on potential. So that's where these players are getting stuck because the mid-table teams have got smart to the idea that there's no... Is there a massive benefit for us in a business sense? And it's a bit of a gamble on the pitch. But I think it's more than that. I think they've they've broken some of these often state bad clubs have broken the market. They, they, you talk, those clubs you talked about, those mid mid ranking Premier League clubs, they couldn't afford to pay the wages of Bernardo Silva 
or Laporte. So that's what's changed. There's not there, there's the gulf between even those clubs and the and the, the, the kind of middle classes has become so big. And then you've also got to look overseas and think Juventus are three hundred odd million in debt. Inter Milan are six hundred odd million in debt. China have changed their policy. That used to be a get out for lots of clubs. If you know, so Real Madrid and Barcelona are faced basically insolvent. So that is another thing as well. But it's just the market looks to me broken. No one can afford to take the players that these elite clubs have hoarded off their hands. I think I think it's um, also to do with the businessification, if that's a word. It's not of, 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 of football that we've seen over the last sort of 10, 10 years. And it's just part of that sort of movement. It's, it's clubs, you know, clubs used to think of transfers in terms of football and improving your squad, um, changing your team. And they used to think of the player, they used to think of the player's career. This is now football clubs and, and their chief execs or chairman thinking as accountants and thinking of players as assets on a balance sheet, assets that can be capital, money monetized, that can be hoarded um, and that can be cashed in on um, and that have a sort of monetary value. And that's it. You, you ignore the sort of football side of it. And the, 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 I, I, the first time I saw the change was, was Ed Woodward. Um, when he arrived at United and we, we went on the, the pre-season tour to Thailand and, and Ed sat down with all the, all the journalists and he, talk, he, he just talked about his plans for United and Nanny at the time was kind of up for debate because David Moyes didn't really want to keep him and Ed's solution was to give him a five-year contract and it seemed like weird and Ed's, Ed's explanation was, he said, he said, I want to have a fat squad and what he meant by that was he wanted to have a squad that had a big monetary value with lots of assets in it. And if you gave Nani a five-year contract, it would boost his value and then he could sell him for more. And it was that approach to kind of squad um, husbandry or whatever that, that just was completely different to the sort of football approach um, that, that I think is the tr- we've been used to traditionally. You look at Chelsea, how much the money they've made from, from this approach you know, look at Kennedy's gone out on loan again, seven years at the club. United are still following the Ed Woodward kind of template. Pereira's gone out on loan eight years at the club. And these guys are seen as having, yes, a transfer value, but if that value's not met, then they've got a loan value. And that's how you, you, you sort of pay for things. I don't think it fits with necessarily building your football club, your football team to be stronger, but it's about, it's about the balance sheet. And... I feel very sorry in some ways for players that get trapped in into this scenario. But then in other senses, no, because they get new contracts out of it. You know, they get they, 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 I mean, they, they get new deals and, and then get sent out unless they make a lot of money from it themselves. Mitchy Batshuayi is another one. He's just been given a That's new right. contract by Chelsea to go to Besiktas. I mean, what, to increase that, his value. Yeah, they think they'll get a bit bigger fee for him next year. Like, I don't know. That personally think... You, the next question is, what's the solution? And that's, you know, James was James was saying a limiting squad numbers. It's got, you know, the, the number of players that top-level clubs are hoarding now is unprecedented. And it's kind of, I don't know, it's skewing the competition a little bit, I think. If you're, if other clubs, I also think, you know, with my EFL hat on, it skews competition in the championship sometimes because club seasons can rest and fall on the players that they are allowed to be loaned by Premier League clubs. Derby County being a prime example with under Frank Lampard and they got Harry Wilson, Mason Mount, 
Tomori at, uh, at centre half. So you know this happens every year. There's like a clubs are making presentations to to clubs desperately <laughs> asking to be given their players because they know it can be the difference between getting promoted to the Premier League or not. Uh, it's not healthy. Yeah, I mean that's one solution, but it's just how you manage it to have a cap. That is to have a cap on the number of players in your first team squad, and where would that be? I reckon it would be in the mid forties anyway, wouldn't it? I mean, no, no. The the the, the best the way that James Highly that was saying, and I believe it was our know, former colleague uh, Gav Marcotti who wrote about this last about a year and a half ago. Now I think he capped at nineteen players who were aged over twenty two. Nineteen. That sounds drastic. But then obviously that incentivizes you to produce your own players and and you know then you have like a cut every every summer. That's what he was suggesting. And obviously there's a lot to be worked out, but it needs to be drastic. It's not like forty players of any age. It's incentivize producing your own players. Young players don't don't count in the quota and a really drastic cut to the number of players so the talent trickles down essentially. What happens when you know someone's over the age of twenty two and you can't sell them though? Does that just terminate their contract and they leave on a free, or can you? Do you only give out contracts to the young youngsters up until the age of twenty-two? Clearly, there'd be a big grace period when this was uh, this was transitioning in, obviously. But also, I think I believe Gab kind of suggested if a player was being cut, they would be uh, compensated with a year's worth of their salary, and then you know it also would perhaps bring down transfer fees if a player's going on a going for a potentially going on a free, and all the club has to do pay them a, a, a year's salary, then, you know, it would depreciate transfer values as well. It's a complicated issue, but the number of players that clubs are hoarding now is, is skewing competitive balance. Yeah, definitely need to a drastic response. We'll see what happens in the future. And I think all of these players will be on big salaries and we won't see them appear once again in the Premier League, which is, you know, as a football fan for me, some of these players anyway, you know, sad that they're not playing at any level anywhere because, um, you know, you want great players out there. Um, look, finally, before we leave the podcast, I mean, this is this is the big news of the week. You know, it's surprising that we didn't start the podcast with it, really. I mean, a disgrace. A disgrace from Puma. I'm sorry to say it. We've seen the third kit of Manchester City. No badge. And it's not just City who have been disgraced with the same thing. It's unbelievable. AC Milan, Krasnodar, Marseille, Valencia and more with no badge. Just a brand name. across. I mean, looking like a, a cup from McDonald's, frankly. I mean, it's disgraceful. You know, it's absolutely disgraceful. It's not what football is about. Tom, what have they done? Football kits are one of my favourite, favourite topics as a sports journalist because nothing matters <laughs> so little and yet mat- and yet matters so much. Even I, like, I find myself doing it going, oh, it's just a kit, wind it in, and then Lincoln bring out theirs. And I'm like, what the hell is that? I mean, it's, it's fantastic, isn't it, as a topic? But you're right, they, they are shocking. They are really, really bad. I mean, the, my problem with kits, having been a f- football fan who grew up during the 90s, is the uniform nature of them these days. I mean, we had this in the last few years with a lot of Nike kits and Adidas kits where they were just so nakedly the exact same kit with a different badge on. I think I remember Liverpool, England, loads of the goalkeeper kits were just completely the same. I mean, goalkeeper kits are the open goal for me to do something a bit bonkers. Goalkeepers are bonkers. The kits should be bonkers. If a goalkeeper kit is not like bright pink with like yellow stripes, what a waste. What a wasted opportunity. (laughs) I mean, never mind the fact that there's been scientific papers written saying how if you have a bright goalkeeper kit, 
when you're running out one-on-one with someone, it actually might put them off a little bit. The idea that you'd have a black or a grey goalkeeper kit, what a waste. So it, that's my that's my main <laughs> issue, as well as the bad no badge. It's the uniform nature. They're just chop and change colours with these stripes. I mean, and if listeners haven't seen them, they've rather than a badge, it just says Manchester City, and then the then Man the sponsor. Man City, even worse. Uh, yeah, Man, Man City. City. Man City. Ugh. It looks like one of those knockoff training tops that you see in like yeah. corners. It's it, they are horrendous. I have nothing else. They to look say like about s- that. the kind of things <laughs> that like your 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 auntie would buy you from a supermarket for your birthday, <laughs> and you'd have as a kid and then you'd have to like pretend to be buzzing about it and like you'd look at your dad out of the corner of your eye and he'd go be say thank you say thank you i know it's not the proper kit but say thank you and you're like for god's sake <laughs> what is this never wearing this in the playground they're, they're they're shocking but i mean it doesn't matter but it's gloriously gloriously nonsense isn't it juventus with their new third shirt cristiano ronaldo sporting it as some people have been saying on Twitter this morning, though, that that looks a bit like a rugby league kit. If anyone looks at the Warrington rugby league kit, it looks quite a lot like that. But at least it's a bit mad and it's a bit different. But there must be a market. These guys aren't stupid. So they, they must have done the research and people wanted to something like that Man City kit. Surely they, it's not, they're, not, they're not doing it for, for fun. They must think that that's, that's what a certain type of football consumer, and I don't know who they are, Johnny. wants. It's a disgrace. They got away with it in the Euros. <laughs> they got disgrace, away with it in the Euros. No, no, no. You know, just, you know, the Italy away kit, Czech Republic away kit, if you saw them, just saying Czech Republic, like in words or Italia across the front. That In like, you know, remember the old FC UK t-shirts, just like tiny font across <laughs> the t-shirt. No, that's not what happens with football shirts. Okay? Someone's you put some effort in. You know, Someone's people want to be proud of their football shirts and that means you've got to put some effort into them. I know as soon as the kits come out whether my team's going to have a good season or not, frankly. You know, if they're <laughs> too outrageous, you're just like, no one's going to respect us here. We're going to get rolled over. You know, we're going to rock up, dress like Ronald McDonald and, and our away games and people are just going to start laughing and we're going to lose them all 2-0. And frankly, this season, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm quite impressed by them. But, you know, and I think it could be a good year off the back of it. But I'm sorry, this third kit at Manchester City all the money in the world can't buy you style. I'm sorry. It is what it is. You know, you can say I've overreacted if you like, but I'm frankly, it's a disgrace. And the less we see of it, the better. There, I've had my say. Uh, Gregor Robertson, Tom Clark, Jonathan Northcroft, been a pleasure to be with you uh, on the Game Podcast once again. And thank you all for listening. Remember, you can get more of our award-winning journalism at The Times and The Sunday Times. You can subscribe right now and get yourself one month free. Go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started. And we will see you on Monday. Listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. 